Welcome to Dialogues in Afro-Latinidad, a podcast dedicated to amplifying and elevating Afro-Latin American and Afro-Latinx histories, cultures, and communities. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Reed Vasquez. Join us for conversations with experts and artists to learn more about Afro-Latinidad. Venga. I'm delighted to welcome today's guest, Dr. Eddie Bonilla. Dr. Bonilla is currently a postdoctoral fellow in Latinx studies at the University of Pittsburgh. He joined Pitt after having been a postdoctoral associate in ethnic studies at the University of Illinois after receiving his PhD in history from Michigan State University in 2019. He is currently working on his book manuscript and tentatively titled Homegrown Communist in the Age of Reagan, Multiracial Politics and Socialist Revolution that looks at the theories and practice of Latino, Latina, African-American, and Asian-American communists during the 1970s and 1980s. Welcome to the Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, Michelle. I, I appreciate it, and I look forward to our conversation. Yes, so, so I want to just jump right in. So you're from California, the Southeast LA area. So what was your journey from there to academia, and especially to Pitt? Yeah, so originally um, I was an undergraduate at the University of California, Irvine, um, taking Chicano Latino studies classes as a, as a history major. Um, and I always kept asking, you know, like, why aren't we talking about other groups of people, um, other working class groups of people, not knowing at the time that, you know, it was Chicano studies that so we were focused on Chicano people. But then Speaking with professors, they kept kind of pushing me to further think about, you know, working class communities and the kind of similarities between them. And so eventually made it to Michigan State University um, doing my doctoral program. And there um, really I, I found a, a great community of, of scholars of African-American history, um, including my mentor, uh, Dr. Pero Dagbovi, who kind of kept pressing me to kind of think about you know, the, some of the, the intersections between African-American history and, and Chicano Latino history. And so the project kind of kept blossoming. And then um, even then uh, teaching with folks such as Dr. Glenn Chambers, I kind of always was thinking about uh, African-American history in, in connection with Latin American history as well as Latino history. So that's kind of where, you know, I, I start kind of crafting my my project. Then originally I was only doing Latino history in my dissertation. And then I realized that the, the Latino activists I was talking about, they merge and create a multiracial organization with African-Americans and Asian-Americans. And, and even within the Latino group, there was Puerto Ricans, there was Central Americans, Salvadorians, uh, Guatemalans, as well as, and then predominantly Chicanos. So I kind of kept pushing myself to further think about, you know, um, how this develops. And then it's kind of been a journey ever since then, talking to different activists and then kind of making it here to Pitt and being able to be a part of a community, um, dealing with the, the Afro-Latinidad and Afro-Latinx dialogue series. And, and so it's been, it's been fun. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love this. I love that you're talking about the connections, the collaborations, the solidarities. I think that is something that, that doesn't get talked about enough I mean, in ethnic studies, we do talk about the, these different groups, Latinx and African-American and Asian-American and indigenous and very distinct corners and, and for good reasons. But we also do have to keep in mind that they're talking to each other all the time, especially historically. And I think, I think the work that you're doing is so incredible, so important to remind us about that. 
Um, earlier, we were talking, you mentioned that you're passionate about ethnic studies, especially the, the issues of comparative race and intellectual studies. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, why you were drawn to this area? You mentioned it a little bit in your um, development at Michigan State, but but as you kind of have grown since then, what what is uh, what keeps you going in this particular area? Yeah, one of the things um, in, in doing research and and kind of interviewing, doing oral histories and, and being in the archive, I kind of kept realizing that a lot of the activists I was, I was talking to are either currently in, in academia at, at really high positions from the Ivy Leagues through private colleges, all the way down through community colleges as well. And, and others were, were K through 12 teachers. So that kind of got me thinking about, you know, okay, so they're, they're teaching now, but let me see their, their longer histories. And mm -hmm. what I found was a lot of these individuals were there at San Francisco State College. They were at the uh, University of California, Berkeley around the, the struggles for mm -hmm. ethnic studies, the creation of ethnic studies. And so many of the people such as Amiri Baraka, who is a, one of the most prominent African-American poets and cultural thinkers of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. He is a, for example, he's a professor at San Francisco State University for a little bit of time in the first program in, in the nation and um, others. Uh, and, and so he eventually becomes a member of the organization that I write about. So I kind of started seeing more and more and more examples of this. And I'm like, okay, so, you know, at Cal State University of Los Angeles, one of the first Chicano studies programs in the nation, there's examples of other Latino leftists being some of the first teachers there. So I really uh, am able to see kind of the genesis of the field and the way that it was connected to the community. And so many of these activists, if they weren't teaching in the ivory tower, they were collaborating and having study groups with some of these early professors, but then also some of these early professors were, you know, members of the Brown Berets or they were members of other organizations during the Chicano movement, during the African-American civil rights, black power movement, or during the Asian American movement as well. So I kind of, that's kind of been the, the way I've been approaching the work. So the story of these collaborations really kind of starts at places like San Francisco State where these activists were all there at the same time and knew of each other, but might not have been in the organizations that they end up being in, but down the line, they, they're all in the same organization. So. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to think about how these folks are either shaped the field or are still shaping the field of ethnic studies and even history as well. So I have two questions coming out of that. First, mm -hmm. can you just give us a brief descriptor of the Brown Berets? And yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So the Brown Berets, and I think this is a good example for thinking about Afro-Latinx history, also Afro and African-American and just Latino movement solidarities and struggles, but the Brown Berets were an organization that uh, pops up in the, the late 60s and the 70s um, in East Los Angeles, but spreads to other parts of the country. Um, and they're influenced by the Black Panther Party coming out of the Black Power Movement, who many folks know, um, people like Huey P. Newton and Fred Hampton and others would kind of, they, they would train and groom a lot of uh, movement activists in, in the Chicano movement. And so, many of the folks that I write about were part of the Braves and they also had very close relationships with, you know, the Black Panthers who would provide support such as money or, and, and some of even the early editions of the Black Panthers newspaper on the backside, they would, they would print the editions of a group known as Los Siete de la Raza, which 
would go on to actually become a part of the organizations I write about, but that, that type of solidarity. So sometimes it was, you know, these moments of actual giving cash to each other, you, they, they would use the Black Panther's lawyer and they would also print the, the Spanish version of Los Sietas newspaper on the backside of the Black Panther's newspaper. So really kind of seeing that, that, that solid connection Great. No, that's that, that's fantastic. I didn't know so much about that that group, so I'm so glad you uh, provided some information on it. And I also want to ask you a little bit about. You mentioned archives. What kinds of archives have you been going to to gather this information? It's always for historians out there. We're, it's always we always have to travel to multiple sites because we're looking at these different figures and the collections. Just you know, you just have to go. You just have to follow them. So I'm curious about where you ended up going. Right, and, and that's been the that's been the fun part of the story is that um, originally, even going back to my undergraduate days, I originally was awarded kind of undergrad research funds that set me on my journey with putting uh, tangible documents in my hands. When I, I took a trip, I think I turned like twenty one, and I went up to Stanford University for the first time for an, at an archive, not knowing what I was doing, <laughs> and I kind of fell in love with it. And so Stanford um, has been a, a very important place for me myself. Um, at the Green Library, they have everything from papers dealing with uh, leftist organizations such as Centro de Acción Social Autonoma, known as CASA, which was originally the group I thought I would write about. Um, but then being in the Bay Area, places like Berkeley um, that have ethnic studies libraries that, that house a lot of the publications of these folks, but part of the part of my project that I when I started was uh, since I deal with communists, many of them were underground. So mm -hmm. they didn't leave names with documents. They they uh, they don't have a, a centralized archive. So I, I've flown all over the country before looking for one edition of their of their newspaper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I went one time up to Washington State University and walked away with like three editions of a, of a newspaper. And that for me was a success because I didn't that's, have any of this. These that's things. amazing. I mean, but that's, mm -hmm. and that's the archives. I mean, sometimes you go in thinking this or with just this little breadcrumb of information mm -hmm. and then you find what you're looking for or you find another connection to another space of what you're looking for. That's amazing. That really yeah. is. Yeah. No, and, and, and one other, just a, a brief note kind of, um, yes. Dr. Ernesto Chavez actually, um, He's a, a professor at UTEP. He, when he was at uh, UCLA as a fellow at the Chicano Studies Library, he actually collected hundreds of FBI files, um, which happened to deal with the groups that I write about. And so the FBI documents have also become something that I try to use as well, because sometimes the police document these histories, these social movement histories better than the activists themselves. And of course there's, you know, biases and all that stuff laden in there, but it really, this like rebel archive as, as Kelly Lytle Hernandez calls it, I think is, is really important because giving voices to people that we don't normally see, right? In an archive is, is very important. No, exactly, exactly. And as you said, trying to figure out ways to read between those kinds of government FBI reports to figure out what's, what's happening underneath what the words that they are saying or not saying. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're incredibly, all, all those sources. I mean, it's really the work of putting of a detective putting together all these disparate pieces to, to get a more, a more coherent story. Um, so the work is so important. Uh, so, and, and on that note, how would you say that your work as a scholar, as an educator, uh, contribute to our understanding then of Afro-Latinx, Latinx, African-American, Asian-American uh, histories, cultures, et cetera? 
Yeah, kind of first and foremost, the, the what I how I try to approach my work is really trying to diversify our, our understanding of who intellectuals are, um, and particularly who are these these thinkers of Marxist thought, because um, part of the issue with with Marxism that a lot of folks talk about is that it is white Eurocentric and it's kind of a stand-in right for Western thought. But um, so the activists that I write about, they were always critiqued because this is a moment of cultural nationalist fervor where the Chicano movement is about Chicano pride. So a lot of individuals would be like, you know, why are you reading Marx, this white guy that didn't know about her experience? But what I have found is that um, the, the, the canon of Marxism, so thinking of, of thinkers such as Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, uh, Joseph Stalin, Mao in China, is that um, the activists that I, I talk about, they all form their own organizations via their own racial and ethnic groups. So mm-hmm. a Chicano group or a Latino group, and then a, a, an African-American group, and then an Asian-American group, but they all read the same books. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that this gave them a common political language to be able to speak to one another and create these solidarities that eventually resulted in them combining their organizations. And so simultaneously, they all used Marxism for their own grassroots personal experiences is what I try to argue. And, you know, so there's examples of farm workers who were reading Marx when they were on break and um, other folks were, you know, deciding to go into the factories because they were reading this literature. And, And so what I argue though, is that they all, you know, they're in constant study groups, but they also are producing their own intellectual theories as well around the black nation, around even um, a Chicano nation, and then also thinking about Asian American oppression. And so these folks are not only intellectuals, but they're also some of these, they're historians because mm-hmm. simultaneously ethnic studies is still being created. So, you know, the classes that they are all taking are still white, you know, centric and and still very celebratory. And so they're, they don't have the books that we have today, right? To To learn about their own histories. They are actually you know, out in the streets trying to figure out their own histories and writing that and publishing that. So I, I try to kind of take them for the important intellectuals that they are. No, that, I think that is so important to, re- to remind people that while they're looking at this kind of core text on communism, that they're making it their own, that they're taking the pieces of it that are, that are, that are meaningful for them and their own experiences and saying this is so we're going to lay it out this way and as you said even because there's a core they have the similar kind of language um, to use with it but also like you said they make it their own and so that's what makes it so distinctive and i also love the point about they're creating that they don't have the books that we have today so they're literally creating the history from the moment from what's happening right now and it's it's so important to remember that this is uh, it's an ongoing process. I mean, even here in the 21st century, we're still rethinking what ethnic studies is. I know in the academy, they're rethinking its importance, its significance. And that's been a battle for the entire 50 year plus of the development of the field. So um, this, this work, again, going back to the kind of foundational groups that you're talking about, I think that's really key to reminding us how, you know, where we've come from, but also how much, how, where we have to go, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to ask you then thinking about that then going from the past to the present, what do you think are some of the most urgent issues then for these ethnic uh, studies groups, Latinx, Afro-Latinx, African-American, Asian-American and others? Yeah, um, 
I think in particular, um, violence is one and, and in particular in different iterations of it, I think police violence is, is one major example, right? And, and, and this is what, what I think links some of my work to places like Latin America, but also these different racial and ethnic groups here in the United States. I mean, just recently, we've had a spike, right, of violence towards Asian Americans. And, and so many of the activists that I, that I talked to and wrote about um, or write about, they, um, they're, they're dealing with this stuff in the 60s, 70s, and 80s as well. There's, a, there's an infamous case of, uh, around a, a gentleman known as Vincent Chin, who is, is killed um, by, by white workers who were um, angry about some, I won't go into detail about it, but just th thinking about the connections, even just the Asian American perspective, but also, um, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think the, the question of policing and, and just even on our webinar, uh, with Dr. Keisha Khan Perry talking about Afro-Brazil and, and mm -hmm. just the, the situations there, but also Ma uh, Marisol Lebron's work who deals with Puerto Rico and, and their chat, their work talking about um, just how blackness is, is policed on, on, the, on the island as well. And it's over-policed. So that's definitely, um, I think, of course, major. And, and also thinking about, um, as, as uh, Jennifer Jones talked about also on the webinar, just the, the linkage of, of abolish ICE and abolish uh, abolishing the police and thinking about how do we kind of create a new world with that and, and so much about abolitionism, right? With prisons and mm -hmm. the, the statistics of, of people from black and brown communities being incarcerated and, and even after incarceration, Michelle Alexander's work, the new Jim Crow and thinking about, you know, what about post-incarceration and the cyclical process. And so that's definitely, I think, major. And, and, and also um, even recently in, in my own teaching, I think it's important is um, trying to talk a lot about anti-Blackness in the Latino community, I think is, mm -hmm. is very important. And, and thinking about even my own family history and, and just thinking about things you hear when you're growing up from your parents, you know, and, and you know, things that they say about even uh, about just black people in general, but also even indigenous people. Sometimes there is a, this kind of anti-indigenous language as well. Um, so definitely, definitely all of that. And, and, I, and I think about it through things such as like reggaeton and music, like, you know, the way we celebrate certain white Latin American Spanish artists today versus the way that um, black reggaeton artists from the Dominican and other locations, how they were, you know, their, their histories are kind of being written out and forgotten in, in the current kind of mainstream. So just just that th those are kind of the two biggest ones I think mm -hmm. um, that I think about daily. Yeah. So you mentioned in there um, family history. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more on that area. Yeah. So um, kind of growing up. So um, both my parents are from Guatemala and, and they're both from the coast of Guatemala. My dad um, stopped going to school at the age of 12 and he started working on the, the banana plantations down in, in Guatemala. And so mm -hmm. his own story and, and, and his family lineage has connections to working on, in the, the banana field. And um, this is kind of where Glenn Chambers's work has really been important for me with the importation, right, of uh, Black workers from mm -hmm. parts of the, the Caribbean and, you know, thinking about those kind of relationships, but also just even like family parties, how mm -hmm. I would I would notice that there was, you know, uh, my family, well, my family's half and half. My my mom is very light-skinned and her nickname is even Blanca. So 
Um, and so she, she's got like, everybody calls her that. And so um, myself and one of my other brothers were, were very light skinned. Whereas like my, my father is actually a, a little bit darker skin and, and that side of the family is. And then my brother, one of my other brothers is kind of darker skin as well. So we kind of have this within our own even close nuclear family, there's this colorism that goes on. Not, not colorism in the sense that we we're like make fun of each other for being a different color, but mm-hmm. more so in the sense that you can see the diversity. But at family parties, I would see that there was, you know, there was there was black Latinos and and growing up, I didn't know. I always I never I always kind of thought about it and noticed it, but I never knew the history behind it. So uh-huh. once I started learning about, you know, banana the just bananas as a commodity but banana Mm -hmm. labor as well and then also realizing just kind of um how much diversity there is and then now learning about afro-latino history and how this is not just you know it's not unique to guatemala it's it's you know it's throughout latin america and so trying to reinforce that to my students that there's diversity within even not only the Latino community, but even within each national origin, each nation, each nation, right? Right. No, exactly. I mean, yes, I have to do the same thing with where it's, you know, they have there's there's their own specific history and they have their own kind of racialized groups. And so and they and they're essentially the same as here and just different proportions. And so uh, as we even though, again, that's not the narrative here. And so we have to work even harder to help students. Uh, and, and even you know the general public understand the history of, of slavery in Latin America and the Caribbean, that you know ninety percent um, of the slave trade went to those that those regions, not to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then having to you know unpack it and and help students understand it. I mean, it's been uh, it's a you know I guess a labor of love is what we could sort of call it. Um, but I think it's really important that the work that you're doing, and I mean, partly, you know, noticing within the family or their personal histories and what's going on in that, because I think in some ways that's an incubator for, for a lot of academics for the work that we end up doing, um, because it, it is very telling about, uh, those moments. Uh, but I think it's, I think, I think you've done an amazing job kind of saying, going from there and recognizing your family's history and kind of this whole, uh, spread of uh, well, of the of the plantation economy and the bananas and issues of race in Guatemala and uh, the Latinx communities in the U.S. and then that those collaborative efforts by uh, by Latinos and Afro-Latinos and African-Americans and Asian-Americans here. I mean, I think it's really this kind of incredible full circle that you're that you're covering here. I don't know if you did it intentionally or not, but it's <laughs> definitely I can see it just kind of you know webbing its way all the way through. So that's fantastic. Um, I wanted to ask kind of as our semi-closing question, I guess, um, in addition to the book you're working on, Homegrown Communists in the Age of, of Reagan, Multiracial Politics and Socialist Revolution, what other specific resources then would you recommend to people who are interested in learning more about this topic or these communities? And you mentioned a few, but I want to know if there are any, are there any others that you're thinking about? Yeah, I, I definitely got like a, a stack of books that folks that are listening won't be able to see, but um, definitely thinking of... Um, one of the important books I think about, and and I, I I hope that my book can hopefully be a kind of second part to Dr. Laura Pulido's Black, Brown, Yellow, and Left, which is ra- about radical activism in Los Angeles, um, whereas she stops in 1978, which is kind of where I pick up. Um, but also uh, Dr. Minka Makalani's work um, around radical Black internationalism. And, and in particular, he has a chapter about um, 
how Asians actually open up uh, the common turn to African-Americans. So you, there's a long history here, right? Of, mm -hmm. And this is what I try, this is the kind of scholarship I try to speak to, but um, also Dr. Felipe Hinojosa's uh, just brand new book that just kind of came out um, is, is called uh, Apostles of Change, Latino Radical Politics, uh, Church Occupations and the Fights to Save the Barrio. And what he's kind of doing there is he's linking um, African-American religious movements with um, Latino religious movements and particularly um, uh, church takeovers by uh, the Young Lords in Chicago, as well as um, Chicano movement organizations in Los Angeles as well. And then um, uh, lastly, I'll, I'll kind of mention uh, Fred Ho's work. Um, Fred Ho was an Asian American baritone saxophonist and he, had a, 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 he was a member of the League of Revolutionary Struggle, which is the group I write about. Um, but he has an edited volume with uh, Bill V. Mullen called Afro-Asia, Revolutionary Political and Cultural Connections Between African-Americans and Asian-Americans. So there's a lot of literature out there that kind of focuses on this. And then I, I really wanna make sure I shout out my friend, um, Catherine Bynum's work, who is a assistant professor at Arizona State University, who is using, uh, who talks about um, Texas politics and these black brown coalitions that are made out of um, violence, the, the violence that black and brown communities face and how that actually in turn creates some of these solidarities for folks. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow. Thank you. That's fantastic. These are great resources. And, and for me, um, a real learning experience because I'm, I'm coming from another century, uh, but, but evolving to learn more about this. So I'm really grateful uh, for you for sharing that. And hopefully our listeners will also be able to take a look and we'll try to make those links uh, available for them on that. Uh, well, I want to just, uh, I feel like I have, there's so much to say, but I want to, uh, but we don't have a lot of time left. So I just want to say, um, is there anything, anything else you, you're, you're thinking about that you want people, you want to stress for people about these kinds of solidarities coalitions within ethnic studies? Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's, a, there's a, actually a few organizations I, I wanted to kind of shout out and to make this point about these, um, thinking about intergenerational dialogues. Um, the, the fact, because I think it, there is a tendency, right, in social movement history that sometimes the younger generations are like, oh, those old people, they got it wrong or they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> right. And then you get it on the flip end where some older generations are like, oh, these vet these movement veterans are like, oh, the, the young folk don't know what they're doing. But mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think there's, um, by looking at the groups that I write about myself, a lot of the activists are still in the movement and they are actually making sure to give the younger generations the opportunity to lead. And mm -hmm. so I, I did want to shout out the, the organization of Black Struggle in St. Louis, um, which, is, which had ties to the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson. Um, also the Chinese Progressive Association in San Francisco, as well as in, um, in New York, and then the Eastside Cafe in um, Los Angeles. But even more importantly, um, one organization that I think is very important right now is um, the Labor Community Strategy Center, which is in South Central Los Angeles, where it's led by Eric Mann, who is a, he's a white organizer who started back in, in 68 with, uh, or in the 60s with the Students for Democratic Society um, and white student movements on college campuses. Mm -hmm. um, but even then he, the associate director is Barbara Holland, who is an African-American woman who um, was an organizer, is an organizer with them. And then uh, Chani Martinez, who is a, bl a Black Garifuna organizer who does a lot of their 
um, organizing it, and, and they're in the they're in the high schools, and they have high school organizers, and they're a multiracial think tank, ag tank that's committed to um, the current issues of getting police out of uh, K through twelve schools, um, as well as trying to fight for environmental justice and. Mm -hmm. Um, so there, there's a, and all of these organizations have at least some sort of link to the, these, these groups that I write about from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So the fact that these organizations exist, as well as that there's academics and others, um, I think shows the power of these organizations. Even if we think that the, these communists failed in the 70s and 80s, they, they, they fail mostly because they're fighting against capitalism, right? Which is the mm -hmm. system that, exactly. you know, it runs the world. So the fact that they're 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 still in it and they're organizing, I think, is very significant. And so, I think that's one thing I kind of want to leave is just the, these intergenerational dialogues that have to happen, as well as these cross racial dialogues as well, right? Yes, this is incredibly important. I think we're. Uh, I love that you're mentioning of the, inter the intergenerational piece and the cross uh, dialogues piece. Uh, and on that, I think we'll we'll close it on that. So I want to just thank you so much for sharing all of this wealth of information, sharing about yourself both professionally and personally, um, and for joining us today and, and sharing your story. So thank you. Yeah, th thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Dialogues and Afro-Latinidad, please subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend. For links to the resources mentioned in the interview, visit our website at michellereedvasquez.com forward slash podcast.